Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're coming back to something really important. We're talking about well-being. who know me outside of this podcast, and I'd like to believe even those that only know me through the podcast, uh, I'm quite famously an optimistic person. Uh, being a human is an inherently complicated and messy experience, and the pendulum's going to swing back and forth between good times and bad. But even I, with my persistent and potentially annoying sunny disposition, have to admit as of late, it's gotten a lot easier to feel the pendulum is favoring a particular side. Now, I'm not going to run through the laundry list. There's no shortage of tragedies, war crimes, looming existential threats, you name it. But I think we've reached a point where if you're listening to this in the not too distant future, and I say that we're recording in the early summer of 2022, that's sufficient enough a mile marker to provide some emotional context. All of this is to set the stage for today's topic, well-being. Uh, we've broached this one before, but we're taking a deeper dive today because the truth is the world has always been kind of a nightmare of a place to exist, yet somehow throughout human history we found ways, in spite of it all, or maybe even because of it all, to live a happy and meaningful life. Uh, so we thought at, at a time where technology bombards us daily in such a way that makes it a lot easier to feel as though there are more dark clouds and sunny days ahead, why not look at the ways we can push the needle back in the other direction and discuss how technology can also help us put things back in balance? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what well-being is all about, balance. I mean, it's actually it's, it's a lot more complicated than just that, but I'll defer to my experts to help define and explain further. Uh, speaking of experts, I got two of the best in the biz joining me today. Of course, it wouldn't be the Feelings Lab without my friend and co-host, Dr. Alan Cowan. Alan, great to see you again. Hope you're doing well, sir. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Great to see you, Matt. Oh, thank you, man. That's really nice to hear. And further indication of how important we <laughs> felt today's chat could be, we called up a TFL legend, frequent co-host and friend of the show. <laughs> co-director of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, best-selling author and frequent Pixar collaborator. The one and only Dacker Keltner is here with us. My goodness, what a sight for sore eyes you are, sir. Welcome back to the show, Dacker. How you doing? I'm, I'm tearing up just hearing your voice, Matt, so it's good Aww. to be with you. <laughs> I had the you, same Alan. feeling when I saw your glorious golden mane. It's so nice to have you back. <laughs> oh, uh, gentlemen, before we go any further, just a quick outline of what I'm looking to accomplish today to give our listeners an idea of what to expect. I'm hoping we can start with the obvious. Define well-being. What exactly does it mean when we talk about well-being? That conversation should naturally lead to establishing why it's so important. Uh, and then if we want to improve upon it, sure, it would be nice if we can measure it, right? So how do we do that? How do we quantify it? And then lastly, how can we best leverage the latest tools and technology available to us to impact it for the better? How do we actively ensure not just our own well-being, but that of those around us? That's the stuff I'm hoping to get to, uh, I guess, in summation Make me feel not sad, please. Uh, so that's enough out of me. I'm going to lob this ball up in the air and see who jumps for it first. Let's get the easy one out of the way. We're not talking exclusively about mental health or physical health or any one aspect of the human experience. But what exactly is it that we are talking about when I say well-being? Whoever wants to get it first. I know you both got great answers. Let's see. Really? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's harder question than you thought. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I mean, well-being is uh, not feeling well at a given moment in time, but feeling well in general. It's like the, the aggregate experience of positive 
feelings versus negative feelings and uh, it being really worthwhile to be alive. Right. And mm -hmm. to, um, and, and feeling like you can look back on your life and say, this has been a satisfying life. It's been, uh, one where I was happy and, um, one where I'll continue to be happy and, and so forth. And, and as we'll probably get into there's no single best measure or best definition. Um, and, and so it's one of those things where it's kind of, you know, it when, when you see, you know, when you feel it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Decker, how's that align with your uh, your thoughts on on the idea of well being? If there's no one measure or definition, I'd love to hear your take. Uh, what your what your outlook? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it it is this global evaluation that life's pretty good, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, and that's Ed Diener, five items to measure life satisfaction, been used forty fifty thousand studies. Uh, it really matters, uh, but then you know, the field has gotten interested in some other dimensions to this. Alan used the word, the word life is worthwhile. So is your life meaningful? And so yeah. maybe you're not feeling really good, but you're doing really meaningful work, right? You're, a, yeah. you're working in an emergency room and it's really chaotic and you're helping people stay alive. Um, and so I think that, you know, people think about well-being as I, I feel good about life and it has some meaning to it. And it has just changed dramatically over historical periods. So the Greeks in ancient Greece really felt that happiness was really tied up with fate and chance that it smiled upon you. Mm. Uh, in East Asian cultures, it's more connected to relationships and duties. Uh, it's, it's always changing, but it does, as Alan said, rightly, it's, it's got this evaluative component that I feel good about my life and it's giving me meaning. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot in there that I hope uh, to, to come back to throughout our conversation for sure. But let's let's keep going uh, down this rabbit hole a little bit. Something I've <laughs> noticed, uh, and this is purely anecdotal on my part, but something I've observed is that uh, a younger generation, Gen Z and beyond, they, they appear from conversations I've heard through younger cousins and, and, and the, the various inroads I have to the younger community. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I've noticed there's a, a heightened awareness and, and uh, conversations happen within their their age group that just weren't happening when I was their age not too long ago. There's a there's a vulnerability in discussing their well-being and their emotional well-being compared to what I remember being comfortable discussing when I was 16 or, or 15 and what have you. And, and I'm curious in the work that you guys have done, consulting, teaching, etc. Have you seen anything similar? Is this unique to, to the younger generation, the Gen Zs and such? Or is this more of a widespread conversation that's taking place everywhere, not just on this podcast, but not just limited to young people? What what, what, what have you observed out there in the wild? Yeah, I think it's it's a really specific reaction to um, what came previously, which was, you know, the advent of social media, people presenting yeah. their lives in a certain way, a very curated way. Um, and so that causing sort of a backlash of, well, um, you know, if I'm not going to be honest about how my life is uh, and I'm going to feel bad because I feel like everyone else's life is better than mine, um, then, uh, you know, then, then we all need to come together and agree not to do this anymore. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I think that that's a kind of cultural zeitgeist that's happening in the younger generation um, and something new presenting itself uh, to some degree in social media. Um, uh, you know, there's still an issue, but, um, it seems to be in some 
in some ways correcting itself in terms of how yeah. people present themselves. Well, that's one of those really, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, that you see a, a direct correlation between that, because I was thinking about a similar thing where like my generation has been almost accused of refusing to grow up and we're, we're nostalgia obsessed and we long for this simpler time. And like, when I think of those things that I'm nostalgic for, it's pre-internet stuff where, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss where, and that's why I say like, well, the world's always been kind of a rough place, mm -hmm. but I was just way more ignorant to a lot of it when I was younger because I didn't have social media until I was just like coming out of high school. It didn't really hit. And so growing up, I wasn't aware of everyone else's world except for what they told me at school. And I wasn't aware of all the news because I didn't watch the news and I didn't have a device screaming it at me. So I've always been interested in just what the long-term repercussions were going to be for a generation that's grown up this dialed in and connected. And it's it's interesting to see that that this this could be and, and looks like it is one of those sort of reverberations from, from this technology that we all have um Dakar, yeah, have you oh, go on yeah, yeah yeah what were you gonna say yeah i mean just to weigh in on that uh, what a terrific question matt you know the i mean first of all we have to let, let's just you know call out the facts we've been through a pandemic we've been through an insurrection we've been through george floyd uh we face uh eco crises and so the younger people whom you refer to uh depression's much higher um anxiety is much higher well-being's down in particular 20 to 30 Mm. Um, and so well-being is on their minds because it's, it's hard right now. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the putting that aside or as part of our context for the conversation, um, you know, <laughs> I have been talking about well-being to young people for 15, 20 years, you know, to school audiences and teaching at Berkeley, et cetera. And, and we have, you know, this question of technology that Alan brought up and that you've elaborated upon has, has been front and center. And when you think about it, we've, we have not, we have entered into a massive experiment culturally, mm. right? That no one signed up for. Uh, and, you know, Instagrams and Facebooks and, you know, and uh, sharing stuff and Spotify. And, and, you know, on balance, there are some upsides, but on balance, um, it's been hard on young people, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the, the larger scale studies find, you know, that broad technology tends to diminish well-being and increase a little bit of anxiety, like Alan suggested. And so that's why we should be having this conversation. It's, you know, it is it's one of the central challenges of our times for young people what? and a reverberation. Yeah. And why do we think because there was so much science fiction? I mean, Star Trek, a prime example when I was younger, of just the, <laughs> the optimism of what the future oh would be and what technology <laughs> would hold for us. And so I'm always like faced with and it's got to be more than just because this is how you make the money. But like why a majority of temp com tech companies are, are driven by the negative engagement and the clicks at any cost instead of optimizing for a more yeah. positive user experience. Um, any insight as to why we've we've ended up here? Is it as simple as greed driven or is it more complex than that? Hmm. I mean, I think it's more complex. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, when, when, you know, Jack and I have both been involved inside the tech companies and having some of these conversations and the general, you know, zeitgeist is that people want to fix this problem. They don't want yeah. to optimize for engagement at all costs. Um, there's an excitement about the potential of 
optimizing more directly for measured indicators of people's well-being. Um, I think the the problem is that uh, there's a worry about whether there's a scientific way to do this um, that uh, you know. Uh, doesn't overly um, compress the idea of well-being into a single measure. Um, often the, 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 the question gets raised about like, what happens if you just make people smile more and just ask, ask the algorithm to make people smile. Won't it just show people cat videos and then you won't have intelligent <laughs> conversations anymore? Like that typically. Where do I get that like, app? No, I think that there's, there's some truth to that. Right. Um, yeah. And so what's clear out of that conversation is you can't just optimize for one thing. You need multiple right. measures right. and you need nuance yeah. And the the ability to do that is just emerging. I mean, the ability to get language and nonverbal expression and uh, measures of bullying and harassment and hate speech and other things and make sure that when you're optimizing for one, you're not doing it to the detriment of others or optimize for multiple measures of all being simultaneously. I think we're just starting to get to that point. And so I'm optimistic that this will happen. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, because it's been difficult to come up with a measure we can agree on, the default is what are users actually using? What's in that's engagement, and that can have pros and cons. And Got you know, I, I think the, the the observation here that Alan introduces for us is like nuance, right? And and a greater specificity of how we think about the meaning that we derive from technology. Um, so there, and I think that that's why Alan's work's important in this space because if you think about people's experiences of beauty and nostalgia and awe, for example, which Alan has documented in his work. Well, it turns out that Spotify does a pretty good job, right? And that's mm -hmm. a success story of this, uh, as does the sharing of young artists that you wouldn't know about without technology and new forms of music. So that's a success story, but there, uh, so I think with nuance, we'll be able to look at the different big platforms and, and what they're doing and what they're optimizing for. And, and, and the user should have a better experience as we build these finer lenses into our, our interface with technology. So uh, it's a really complex and nuanced story. You know, yeah. um, young people are politically active in many ways, more so than 30 to 40 years ago. Way more. And, yeah. and that's good news, right? Yeah. Because they can share stuff. So uh, with greater precision and knowledge, we will, will improve it. Yeah. And they've been, they've been way more active too, not just because the, the barrier for entry has been lowered. Like you said, it's so right. much easier to be one. Right. They're exposed to it more Two, It's easier for them to be involved, but also, and this is the part I struggle with without greater historical context is the idea of um, are things as bad as they appear or are we just more aware of bad things? And I think of like how many yeah. uh, child activists I've encountered just in my career as an interviewer because they've entered the game because they survived something at their school that was terribly tragic or they feel the impending doom of the climate crisis and none of the adults in the room are taking it seriously. And so on the one hand, it's easy to write it off and be like, look, things have always been bad. We're just more aware of it. But on the other hand, they're also facing these things every day and trying to do something about it. And I just wonder where, where, do, where do we fall on that scale? It, it, is it a simple answer of like, oh, technology is just 
made us more aware of it or are there more bad things? What do you, I know there's, there's no definitive answer here. I'm just curious about your opinion on this particular matter. This isn't, I think, I think we can scientifically say, oh yes, there are more bad things. I, you know, I'm going to, so, you know, I just had uh, a coffee with Steve Pinker, Harvard professor Mm -hmm. who has made the case in two different books that are data-based, uh, the decline of violence and enlightenment now that in many ways, and I would say in particular in the social indicators, life's better. You know, um, people live longer. They, for, although there's a little bit of a dip in the U S um, they don't do, you know, mindless labor like we used to. Um, we, it doesn't take us six hours to get water. Um, we, you know, if you look at the income, Worldwide, we've lifted a lot of people out of abject poverty. And now, a bigger problem for health is not starvation, it's eating too much. It's eating the wrong foods. <laughs> so in, in a lot of social indicators, we're doing better. And I think, I think you know, when I hear about the, the biased algorithms of Twitter and Facebook, like prioritizing rage and so forth, it's missing a lot of progress that we've made. And then the great counterexample is the environment, where we really... Yeah. What do you think, Alan? I mean, do you think, yeah. Patty, you're younger, and <laughs> I'm older, and, you know, so maybe I'm sort of clouded in my thinking about this. Do you, do you agree with this thesis that in some sense where things have gotten a little bit better? I, I do. I, I think that there's a huge trend in that direction that, I mean, based on Stephen Pinker's data and others and many others who have, who have chronicled this, uh, there's a decline in homicide. There's, yeah. you know, we, we are healthier. We live longer. People are being raised out of poverty. The poverty levels are as low as they've ever been, notwithstanding maybe the last couple of years of yeah. perhaps there's been some backsliding, but, um, but like over the course of decades, um, things are uh, almost on every measure they're improving. Um, the thing so, that's, Oh, I'm sorry, Alan, I didn't mean to cut you off. Finish your <laughs> Uh, I forget what I was going to say after that. I'll come fair, back. To fair me. enough. It comes <laughs> back to you. I'm so sorry. Just to, <laughs> so good. Just to put a fine point on it, and here's here's the tension, right? That we yeah. who knows where we're going. Like, so a lot of Americans are like, January 6th was the scariest moment, and it was. It was horrifying. That yeah. election was horrifying. Right. But it was it was the it had the highest voter turnout in history. Sixty seven percent of Americans voted. More divert. It was the most diverse. Uh, voting uh, uh, politic ever, right? So in some sense, it was our greatest moment of democracy uh, in terms of who voted. That's a hell uh, of a yet, positive spin. That's <laughs> well, that's, that's the tension, right? You see it on the yeah. media and you go, oh my God, it's over, we're Orwellian. <laughs> yeah. and, and what do we? what's the truth? Well, that's just it. And the thing that I was going to say in response, and far be it from me to to uh, <laughs> debate the the mountains of research and data uh, uh, of which that point is based upon. And it is true. Yes, those things are true. Uh, wages are up. Some people are pulled out. A lot of people have been pulled out of property. But then, like, I'll subscribe to this subreddit uh, community called anti-work or anti-work. I, I, I don't know how much I can make myself sound any older and out of touch than I already have, but I, I really read these things and I read these posts and I see uh, um, a, a lot of people 
there is uh, undeniable groundswell. I mean, yeah. look at how many unionization efforts we're seeing right now, yeah. Uh, yeah. and how many workers' rights are, uh, people are fighting for workers' rights and and, and uh, you know equity and, and yeah. appropriate pay. Uh, the the, the never ending debate over yeah. um, the the pros and cons of universal basic income or just yeah. increasing yeah. Uh, the minimum wage, right? So it, sometimes, because it is true that historically speaking, yes, we're doing better on a lot of things, but it's also you have to be careful, at least in my opinion, uh, of silencing the idea that there are still a lot of people yeah. that feel like the system has left them behind and is failing them. Kids coming out of college can't find jobs that are going to pay them what they're worth and all these sort of things. So that's but again, that could be me stuck in an echo chamber of negativity. Right. Yeah. Like there, There's a balance there. But I, I think both of those things are very valid. Yeah. And um, I, I think the danger zone is is ignoring one or the other. Not that I'm accusing any of you of doing Doing that. I'm just and saying, you're, you're speaking. Yeah. yeah. Your point's so interesting and, and it, it really points a finger at social media because I agree with you, Matt. You know, economic inequality rising the last 30 years, central problem of the United States. The wealth is concentrated in the 1%, et cetera, although people have lifted out of uh, prior to that uh, out of poverty. And, and, and it's hard for Americans to think about inequality, they don't share it on social media. It isn't an obvious political issue that is has a lot of traction virally. So it is. It's one of these interesting challenges. And I'd love Alan's thinking about this. Like, how do you take these social problems and and then get us to think collectively on the new platforms or digitally in ways that are productive? Because, you know, yeah. that one is right, Matt, yeah. you know, that we have struggled with economic inequality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in particular, a lot of people are working more now. They're working potentially uh, part-time jobs as the gig yeah. economy, making less money per hour. Cost of living is going up, even though wages aren't going up for most people. I think that's a real struggle. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at history, there were other periods right. like this, um, like the yeah. industrial revolution. Well, that was gonna um, be the question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where like you saw people working in factories for 16 to 18 hours a day. Um, doing really miserable work for very low wages um, and also moments of really high income inequality. Um, and this seemed to be at a low in kind of the post-World War II period where, mm -hmm. um, you know, income inequality was at a low. Um, and, and so I think a lot of it does have to do with that. Um, and we're actually facing um, decisions where, you know, you can automate certain tasks or the wages are so low in certain places that doesn't make sense to automate because you can get such low wage labor. Um, and if, if, if uh, wages weren't low um, and there was less income inequality then, and more equality of opportunity, more education and so forth, um, then you could not only automate those jobs, but more people would be able to do higher level jobs, make mm -hmm. more money, and it would be kind of a virtuous cycle there. So I think that we go through these different cycles. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to, to get out of this one, I do think it is a largely an economic problem um, and a political one. And yeah. getting I think, you know, what's weird about the political environment now and kind of our cultural environment yeah. is that there is a rise. Um, there, you're, you're, the good thing is that there's a rise in people talking about their well-being. The bad thing is that I think there's also a little bit of a rise in people um, deifying sort of wealth um, and and flaunting wealth and getting mm -hmm. like plastic surgery and um, and buying expensive clothes and flaunting that and being less abashed about that. And I think 
um, that's a sign of the times too. Um, and so if, if, if the cultural values shift that way, it makes sense that political values would also shift toward not caring about equality. Um, so that, that would be a problem. One of the questions I had as you're talking about the cyclical nature of our culture and of these different uh, economic elements and all those things. And I was curious, uh, you know, I keep talking about how in my brief time on this planet, I'm noticing an uptick in the conversation and focus on well-being. But, you know, and Dacker, you started to touch on just how well-being is discussed throughout the ages. Are there other periods of our documented history where well-being was put front and center kind of the way it is now? Or, Or are we in the midst of something really special? And this is the most we've ever talked about it because of the technologies has has this conversation this how how significant how important well-being is has it been had before and then kind of went away and now it's coming back is my question i suppose well you know i i think that um i think we are in a unique moment in some sense this and you know it's interesting in the last 15 20 years of um you know the oecd this this network of 37 38 countries uh is starting to commit to well-being governing where you actually have well-being metrics guide economic policy which is striking i think there have been periods in our history where we've been guided by particular passions right Mm -hmm. so you think about the italian renaissance and the medici family really made a commitment to beauty and they were like you know and there was this great flowering of art and beautiful buildings and kind of this commitment to you know, the, that experience and, you know, there are probably periods in French history that are really committed to, um, uh, you know, sensory delight in, uh, in certain, you know, um, uh, you could, you could make that argument that, you know, the Japanese commitment to ceremony and, and Zen has this quality of, of being committed to a sense of, you know, whatever feeling state is part of that cultural experience. But this is, I haven't seen anything, you know, and yeah. like this in terms of really caring about a individual's happiness um, and mm-hmm. hard to find historically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Decker, you mentioned earlier uh, that you, you've taught and been speaking about this for a while yeah. now. And yeah. you, you teach, um, and I'm going to do some bragging for you here. It's one of, if not the most popular class at UC Berkeley. And I believe it's called the science of happiness. Yeah. And, uh, and let's take, Let's take the obvious out of the equation. Aside from your natural gravitational pull, why why do you think that this class is so sought after, so hard to get into? You know, did you, when starting it, ever expect the demand to be so high and for it to be the hot button ticket? Yeah. Like, did, you know, did that take you by surprise, or did you it, see that coming? It did, and and even more so is our we have an online class that we launched at edX as a MOOC, massive online class, whatever. <laughs> when MOOCs were really struggling and it just, you know, I think we've had 900,000 people enroll. Um, Yeah. I think, I think we, you know, we feel it, right. We're in this moment of like, Whoa, you know, you know, a lot of people critique capitalism. uh, A lot of people are worried about the environment. People are working harder today than our parents did 40, 50 years ago. And, and, and the economic needle, as we've noted, hasn't moved. So we're like, what's it all about, you know? And, and so, and I will say, you know, um, the, the, the decline of religion in the United States, younger people are less religious. They go to church much less often. The decline, the, the, the dis in, in universities, the humanities aren't as prominent as they used to be. 
Really? You know, just, yeah. And so people are not given the context to ask the question of like, what is my philosophy of life? And it's the <laughs> most important question we should ask. And so the science of happiness is one angle on it. Yeah, without um, and you're sort of starting to pull the curtain back. Um, but, and again, I don't want you to, as I say, give away the eleven herbs and spices. But if you could, <laughs> you know, what? How much of the class is about emotion science? What do you discuss Huge. in teaching there? You know, is there is there no homework because it makes people unhappy? Like, how does that's a that's a Suzanne joke? How does it all work? <laughs> I, I just I, I want to know more uh, uh, about Three the things. class. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Give it to you me. know, and, and we, you know, so one way to happiness, you know, how do I get this? Right. And one yeah. is like, you know, and Alan's work was instrumental. It was like, Alan has found 10 positive emotions, you know, awe and beauty and interest and love and compassion and laughter and gratitude and, uh, you know, adoration and, and ecstasy and, and find them, you know, find a few, extra experiences of those each day, positive emotions. That's one pathway. Second pathway is relationships, you know, and Matt, and this is where technology has failed. Um, mm. Our relationships are in jeopardy right now. You know, mm. people are spending way too much time alone. We're connecting to people that, you know, uh, it's great to see you because you and I have a long term relationship, but that's not true. Um, digital technologies, it's not clear they can replace being with friends, having a beer at, at a campfire, right? Yeah. So relationships, do that stuff. And the third is very relevant, you know, is um, the, the 10 ingredients is how do I handle trauma and stress? You know, how do I calm down? How do I tell my life story? How do I uh, find deeper meaning, as Alan said? How do I use words to name experiences? How do I get perspective, uh, mm -hmm. digital technologies have trouble giving you perspective because it's so immediate. It's on a little screen. Your attention is zeroed in on a tiny thing. Yeah. But how do I step back and go, ah, you know, I'm going to live 80 years and this is just a moment in time. So there are concrete things you can do. We do them in the class. You can go to greatergood.berkeley.edu yep. and, and do it. You know, and, and our data suggests people get happier in the class. So really, and they that's pretty <laughs> you well, that's you, of course, of course, that's, that's a given, obviously. Um, you teach a bunch of classes over there. Is this your favorite one to teach? Is that? Oh, it's so, you know, it... I have to tell you, um, I, um, you know, and I, uh, my brother passed away and, you know, this was four or five years ago, he got really sick and it I'm just sorry. was one of these life defining events yeah. that really threw me into a tailspin. And one of the things that saved me was teaching happiness. And it was wow. like, and everybody should be doing it, right? Like everybody should be like, this is what matters to me. Let me tell you about why um, awe is so great or uh, laughter. You know, Alan does this amazing work on laughter. And I'm like, man, laughter saves me. And mm. so it mm. is one of the great privileges to teach this class. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I'm sorry about uh, your loss. I was unaware of that. Thank you for sharing that, Dacker. Uh, Alan, 
fun little uh, feelings lab trivia bit for the audience out there. You were you were a TA, yes. uh, and was it for this class? Was it this class specifically, or was, it was another one? Science of happiness. Yeah, it was science of happiness. Yeah. Of course, beautiful. <laughs> what was that like for you, buddy? Oh, man. I mean, there's lots of good stuff in that class. I, I almost think that you know, TAing it should be a requirement for everybody, <laughs> uh, at least taking it. But um, it's funny, like uh, the, the, there's a section on bereavement. And um, yeah. one of Docker's most famous studies, I don't know, he has many famous studies, but <laughs> one of them is that if you uh, talk to people while they're grieving the loss of a loved one, um, this is a situation where, you know, some people hypothesize that if you're laughing, it's probably not a good thing. Maybe you're running away from your feelings, but actually laughter is a good thing, even in that situation. Um, and so even, yeah. even in a case where, um, you know, uh, the, People would say, oh, you have to have some kind of catharsis or you confront your feelings. You have to be sad all the time. Actually, even that is is broken up by, um, by bits of kind of putting things in perspective, um, being able to um, kind of step away from, from that temporarily. And laughter kind of indicates that element of yeah. play and being able to step away from the kind of seriousness of reality. I think that's a really great lesson. And that's... Uh, it's one that you can you can deploy in everyday life for sure. For sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where it's everybody's different. Everybody responds yeah. in a different way. But I I definitely uh, grew up with the laughter is the best medicine kind of thing. Uh, and yeah. yeah, for sure. All right, what a trip, man. We've defined it so far. We've explored its cultural resurgence. I want to talk about uh, well being and its significance. Looking ahead, Alan. After our conversation last week, uh, I decided to comb through the Hume Initiative website and jot down things I either found interesting or didn't understand. And uh, I filled three spiral notebooks. I, uh, I'm kidding. It was, <laughs> uh, but I did write so I did write a particular line down that very much applies tonight. Uh, and it is well-being is the key to the ethical deployment of empathic AI. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for me? Why is well-being so important when talking about the deployment of empathic AI? And more simply, what does that even mean for, for someone listening out there who doesn't quite understand the, the, yeah. the full nuance of that sentence? Just a little bit more for me there, could you? Well, yeah. For, if you're thinking about the path to beneficial artificial intelligence as AI gets smarter, not general artificial intelligence, but just an autonomous agent out in the world that makes decisions, the it being beneficial, it depends more than anything else on how well it can measure people's well-being and, and the extent to which it's optimized for that. Um, and that's, you know, kind of self-evident when you think about it, because, you know, the problem is that you're in a situation where you can't pre-program the system's response to everything. And right. it's making decisions and has to weigh pros and cons. And you can't say every single possible pro and every single possible con. So it has to be able to fall back on some mm -hmm. fundamental thing that's valuable. Um, and that thing is, you know, has to be well-being above all else, human well-being, you know, animal well-being, lobster well-being, you know, <laughs> ideally starting with human well-being. Yes. And the lobster's time will come, <laughs> but we got to get this squared away first. And this is not a new idea. In some ways, this idea is the collision of many different uh, creative thinkers, ideas about AI and philosophers, ideas about AI. So from this perspective of philosophers, we think about the AI alignment problem a lot now um, in computer science and philosophy, where uh, you know, if you program an AI that's really, really smart and you give it an objective that mm -hmm. is not the perfect objective, 
then it's going to be terrible. It's like letting the genie out of the bottle and you always you make three wishes and, and your last wish is always to take back the first two because you didn't word them properly and it did something that resulted in catastrophe, right? So, okay. um, so AI is like that. It, you give it an objective, but you want it to have some common sense. Um, and this mm -hmm. is also what the sci-fi horror movies are about on the creative side. So like, it's all about... AI being given some narrow objective. So like in 2001 in Space Odyssey, the objective is to make sure that uh, the true purpose of the, the mission that these humans are on stays unknown to the crew. Um, and eventually it says, well, I have to weigh that objective against other objectives. And I think I can still maybe accomplish my other objectives, but I definitely can accomplish this objective if I just kill everybody. <laughs> then they'll never find out. But, uh, that's, the, that's what makes it a horror movie, right? Uh, but why not just put don't kill everybody as one of the rules? Like, what? Well, then it could trap them in a chamber and, you know, if it makes sure they don't die by, by you know, uh, intubating them and all that. Anyway, so I don't oh, want to get into the gruesome details but like, <laughs> like you think that there's okay, a simple answer on, with all these examples so don't kill them and don't intubate them like i mean <laughs> okay so put them in a cage and uh and give them food <laughs> the food doesn't have to taste good it just has to keep them alive can't we just do a dry run with very low stakes, find all of these and go, okay, it found another horrific outcome. This time, no cages. And then you go, okay, no cages. And then wait and see what it does. Or is, our, is that what essentially what we're doing? That's what we're up? doing, right? Eventually, yeah. the, okay. the, it, after infinite regression, you get to, well, actually just make everybody feel good and <laughs> as, a, as a priority. It doesn't have to be your only mission, but like at least don't make them feel worse. Uh, right. <laughs> right. And, and actually, like... A, Really, that just depends on having a sense of what are the indicators of well-being. So, yes, is this which segues nicely into right. how do we measure it exactly? Because yeah. because it's not that you have to build things that read people's minds. Um, it's that because they're not going, they're not, it's not, not possible. Um, it's about building things that use the same cues humans do. They care for each other's well-being. Um, and so, you send a human out in the world, and you can give a human a mission. And you don't have to tell it every possible pro con it, every possible decision that human can make because you have it has common sense and the human yeah. you know the human has a basic understanding of human well-being. Um, and so just give that to AI. And uh, the way you do that is well, what is what do humans rely on to understand each other's well-being? They read each other's expressions, they read between the lines of what they're saying, language, emotional language, they look at um you know, self-report, they ask each other questions, they hey, how are you doing? And, yeah. and then if you, and if you sound not too enthusiastic, there's a follow-up, you know, and, and, and there's a dialogue that goes on. Um, yeah. So, you know, you just have to give these capabilities to AI. Um, is that where yeah. you, is that, is that kind of, cause it's not, it's, it, you can't just like run blood work and test for the well-being protein levels, right? Like how do, where did you guys be, how do you begin to outline these guidelines? You know, where, where, where does day one even start with something? So favorite word in the show, anyone playing the feelings lab drinking game, take a shot, ineffable. How do you <laughs> take something so ineffable and where, where did you, where do you begin? You know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that it's not exactly ineffable, right? Like we yeah. we know what facial expressions are, what vocal expressions are, what when people say they're feeling good, what that means. It's just how do you um, basically look at all of the metrics and okay. how do you make sure that you're not uh, optimizing for one thing uh, at the expense of others, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, you know the the counterexample that people give, which is, oh, well, if we just programmed you know this recommender feed to always make people happier, 
then uh, you know it would just show people cat videos. Well, people wouldn't be leading a fulfilling life then. They'd probably show less examples of having good relationships and, and awe and having purpose in life and, and those other things that come with that. Um, and you'd see that in other indicators of well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you would see that in, in, in the dysfunction of people's conversations leading to kind of hate speech and disagreements and arguing. You would see that in, um, in you know, people reporting like after you ask them, like, how do you yeah. feel <laughs> would, right. over, over time, they wouldn't feel as good. And the uh, proxies for that that exist, which are like expressions and um, and charitable donations and, and people succeeding in their goals, like, you know, not dropping out of school, or all that stuff, like you'd see it in, in the numbers. And so the, 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 the key thing we realize is you just need to put together a list of numbers and say, this is. And in, these are the indicators of well-being. These are like the best indicators, and it's a lot of things. These are kind of decent indicators, and just like, compile them. And these are all things you can look at and optimize for. All right, I want to come back to that. But first, Dacker, talk to me about the difference uh, between someone uh, you know who self-reports their status versus uh, observing and looking at their expressions. You know, are those yeah. are those two data points often at odds with one another? Another do they do they need to be taken in tandem together to to get the full story? Just just talk a little bit about that for me because I'm fascinated by uh, I could say one thing but be expressing another sort of idea. Yeah, I mean the the uh, um, and in fact. You know, Alan's been working on that question. So, you know, all of the information that you can glean from how I register the positive and negative emotions or feelings, which are probably a pretty close approximation of well-being. Uh, and in particular, when we do, you, when you do it with the richness that Alan pursues of looking at, you know, awe and compassion and anxiety and terror and so forth, um, they are pretty highly correlated. They're, you know, correlated 0.3 to 0.6, which means there's overlap in if I take a snapshot of your well-being from your cues, your nonverbal cues, or what I say about myself. Um, and so they are somewhat separate and somewhat overlapping, and they both yeah. really matter. You know, they both predict um, the state of your cardiovascular function and your immune system and your life expectancy and depression and so forth. So, the you know, scientists always want more information. Uh, it gives you a, a more comprehensive take on a person's well-being in this case yeah. and both are useful yeah and even uh, another thing i wrote down uh, alan from the site is, is another quote of no single measure of well-being is perfect but many are adequate and you just talked uh, about that at length uh, a moment ago and jacker you talk about taking all those points together how many points of data would you say are required <laughs> to give you an accurate assessment of i'm really getting into the weeds here uh, but like but how much is enough at what point do you go okay this is a, a sufficient amount i've got a good idea of what's going on with this person yeah, I mean, that's another good question. And it depends on the application. It depends on what are the actual risks of what's going on. Because if you're trying to introduce, for yeah. example, a pharmaceutical drug to the population, then you have to be really rigorous about how you measure well-being and you have to measure all the adverse outcomes. Like they have a good sense of it, right? At least all in the negative domain. They don't measure any of the positives for some reason, even though they should. It should be also how happy are you? Because if a drug made you less happy, um, but you were, uh, you know, symptoms were going away and you weren't diagnosed with this thing, but actually you were just not very, you were not flourishing. You wouldn't want that either. Anyway, uh, it's the same, same is true with AI, right? Like yeah. if it's a high risk application of AI, 
you should have to deploy more measures to make sure that uh, yeah. it's having a good impact. If it's yeah. really low risk, then I think it's probably fine to just take what you can get. It shouldn't be an obstacle, in other, in other words, to developing the applications that are beneficial. Um, it should, you know, particularly when you have something that already is reading in video, reading in audio, it doesn't cost you anything to get objective measures of expression, assuming those measures exist, and we have those measures now. But it doesn't, you know, you have those essentially, um, you know, automatically in your data. You just need to you just need to measure them, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, goes a long way. Um, and then in terms of adding new measures, like self-report, obviously it's difficult. You can't get self-report from all of your users all the time. Nobody's going to use something that's just constantly asking them how they're doing. So you use sampling methods. That's what science tells you, right? You sample a sufficient population of people or sample of people that you can make generalizations about the population um, or you know the generalizations about the effect of uh, of the change that you're making an A-B test. If you're introducing a new algorithm, you can, uh, in some subset of users, say uh, a week later, hey, like, how are you feeling? <laughs> um, yeah. And make sure they're not feeling worse on average when that change is made. Um, and so we make that recommendation. The, you know, the problem with self-report is you can't always get it. Um, so objective proxies are going to be the start a lot of the time to optimize for the objective proxies, verify with self-report. This was one of the fascinating things we got into a couple episodes back with um, Dr. Daniel Barron, uh, just about how he was, um, or I can't remember if it was him specifically or work he was deciding or looking at, but just the idea of referencing people's Twitter feeds uh, to get an accurate read of their uh, emotional status at the time, because you could see uh, a fluctuation in either what they were tweeting about or how they were tweeting or what they were saying. And it was just this interesting thing where the, the app isn't pestering them, asking them, how are you feeling? but they were developing ways to passively observe that information yeah. based on what they were willingly putting forth and submit. Um, I just was reminded of that. And I think that's just really interesting. And I wonder, just, uh, you know, as we look forward, because that's the next sort of phase of the conversation is kind of looking ahead and applying now that we know, okay, that's how you measure all this stuff. What do we do with it? Right. And I wonder like if there'll ever be a point and, and Alan, I'd love to, to hear if you think this is, I always do this to you. I always posit some crazy future scenario and I go, you think that'll happen? You think that's real? Uh, so <laughs> here we go. Um, but like in the way that I'll go speak to like a therapist or somebody and, and trust a human being to analyze what I'm saying to them and then help guide me towards some kind of breakthrough or better understanding about my emotion. I wonder if we'll ever be able to observe enough data passively, like in the way that my Apple watch will tell me if I'm not standing enough, if it'll one day go, Hey, you're not taking enough time to really reflect upon that trauma you just experienced. Like, I wonder like, you know, what those data points will be and if they'll observe it, but like how, what, will that ever happen? Will my watch ever do that? <laughs> well, if, if you're asking if it's possible, um, well, I mean, humans are machines, right? Uh, so a therapist a degree, is a yes. machine of, of sorts, a biological machine. If we're going to produce artificial intelligence that is human level, it should be able to do a job, the job of a therapist. Maybe it should be able to be indistinguishable from a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the very least it will have those abilities, but the therapist is looking at you and it's taking in all that data, like you were saying, right. like, uh, so, you know, we'd have to understand what it is that the therapist is looking at. Cause it's clearly not just the, the raw transcription of what's going on during the session, right? <laughs> There's a right. lot going on with nonverbal behavior, 100%. Um, right. And, and that, that's drawn from, uh, and that's, and, and they're experts at that, right. Yeah. Uh, clearly an AI would be able to do it. 
And I think what you're asking is, will they be better at some things? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, you are correct. That is what I'm trying to ask. And if the baseline <laughs> is that, like, <laughs> the, the baseline is that as good, then of course, I assume we should, you know, it should get better. Imagine if it uh, had all the capabilities of a human therapist in the far future, um, but it's also thinking 10,000 times faster, it should yeah. be better at being a therapist. But there's also aspects of, or there's ways it could help us that don't require it to be, have the full intelligence of a human therapist, right? Um, and, uh, you know, part of that is monitoring. So giving us a sense of ourselves, like, well, how happy was I yesterday? How happy am I today? Did I exercise? Making recommendations, um, giving data back to us uh, and to our therapists if we want, um, or to our doctors that says, you know, this was a difficult moment. Do you want to reflect yeah. on this? Or maybe with a, a lot of things depend on relationships, maybe, well, we looked at, you know, and this is obviously with respect for privacy. Um, so the algorithm is not seeing anything um, that you don't want it to, and it's not sharing anything that you don't want it to. It's all on device. It's just like a tool. Um, but let's say like it finds something in your text to a loved one. that's like, this is actually what caused this fight. <laughs> like, like, like they actually comes back to this text. And it can I tell guess you that's, that. the, that's the thing I get lost in, right? Is I just think of how much nonsense data is. <laughs> that's, by the way, that's a very specific use case you've come up with, Alan. We'll explore that I'm one offline. Going. I just, uh, yeah, making things up as I go. But, but, um, but I just, because I think of like uh, just the frivolous nonsense that the data yeah. I've already unknowingly like released into the world, the way it's used against me now to like, you know, position ads for things that I, I've discussed briefly in chat somewhere and then somehow that cookie makes its way back to, and i so it's like okay what if instead of selling me stuff all of this was used for improvement for yeah. betterment yeah. right uh and and that's what that's kind of the seed of that question it's like well will it ever be possible um because you know a therapist only has the data that i'm providing them with right but um i, I am we all are just uh providing mountains and mountains of data all the time to all these different places and it's like well what if there is a way to use that to, to make things better? That's that's what I'd like to see. That's what we all like to see, I suppose. Um, but and that kind of dovetails nicely into sort of the home stretch here of just like, you know, we've talked about, OK, this is how we measure it. This is why we need to measure. It. This is important. How does this all eventually fold back into the system and actually work? to help us find that balance. How, now that we know how to measure it, how do we leverage that to help us find the balance, not just for ourselves, but for those around us? How, how can we use this to be better? And you've, you've talked, touched on some of that, but what's, give me the blue sky, grand vision, uh, the best case scenario. Let's dream a little bit. How do we make things better now that we can do this? So there's two, two aspects to that question. Um, mm -hmm. I'll answer the aspect of like how, how technology that controls the environment that we're in can become better for us. And that's something that's not within my personal control. Uh, and then there's the aspect of like, what can we do personally? I'll leave that to I Dr. wasn't saying, <laughs> Alan, how do you make it better? Just so you know, I'm not. <laughs> well, no, there's ways we can improve our own lives too, right? Um, as, as actors, as, as people using tools uh, that are at our disposal. But like just, just from the perspective of like, how are things designed for us? They could be optimized for our well-being. Right. Yeah. That's like, yeah. the, that's the, the North yeah. star. Um, and uh, there's ways we can do that with multiple measures uh, that don't optimize for one yeah. at the expense of others, but this would be different than how things are being done now with optimizing for 
you know, measure, metrics of engagement, for example, along with other things um, that are being done to try to reduce some of the negative consequences. But this is like the most direct solution is algorithms can be optimized yeah. for us to feel more positive emotions, fewer negative emotions in general, negative emotions we want to feel then like in fear and response to horror movie, all of that being said, you have to express these caveats because otherwise people, there's gotchas. Um, but, like, <laughs> but like, you know, there, there's ways we can do this. Um, expression is one set of measures. Um, Self-reports, another set of measures, um, experience. But like when technology is optimized for this, I think by definition, we will feel better. We will, mm-hmm. our lives will will be more like we'll have more clarity we'll be like oh, well i'm not being sucked into experiences that i didn't want to be sucked into because the algorithm knows i don't want to be sucked into those experiences i'm not getting stuck on a string of you know comment threads that are controversial because the algorithm surfaced that to me when you know the algorithm knows that we're not ultimately going to agree with each other uh, that you know, the algorithm can predict that this will not come to any resolution maybe i am getting uh, involved in disagreements, arguments still, but the algorithm predicts that these are going to come to a res- resolution that they'll improve our well-being over time. That's the key thing. So there's yeah. nuance to it, but, um, you know, these are the direct objectives. Um, and like if in deployment, like it accomplishes these objectives, our lives will be better. We'll be getting in fewer nasty arguments that don't go anywhere. We'll have yeah. better relationships. We'll, we'll, we'll say we're, we'll be feeling happier. We'll self-report happier, be happier, laugh more, all of that stuff. So I think that's yeah. very possible. That's good stuff. I like that. Dacker, what do you think, man, with all the expertise, experience and wisdom you've acquired in your journey thus far? Where where do you hope this all takes us now that we can do this? What doors do you hope this opens? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the first and Alan and I have been part of a lot of these conversations is, you know, that was the Hume Ethics Initiative, like mm-hmm. commit to that principle. You know, that's in the preamble of the Constitution, you know, the right to pursue life, liberty and happiness. And it's in almost every, you know, great cultural tradition is like, we've got to figure out how collectively our rituals and practices and beliefs make individuals fare well. And it's striking how that is not done in technology mm-hmm. and how uh, that is, you know, people look askance upon you when you recommend that. And a lot of problems would be different uh, from teen suicides to political polarization if it was designed for well-being. Um, I, you know, it was interesting, um, I, you know, and I, I haven't figured out the right metaphor or analogy for this, but uh, I took Pete Doctor to Facebook in 2014 and he showed uh, Inside Out. He was the director of Inside Out. And we were just talking about it and he's like, God, it's just too bad that our digital immersion wasn't more like going to your favorite movie or seeing your favorite band or eating in the best restaurant or you know, having the picnic that you love and, and it should be. And, and, but that requires this ethical commitment that gives people choice. And then it requires, you know, emotionally empathic design. Like, you know, if I'm trying to find music and, and what I really need is music that makes me feel grateful for my family. Right. Uh, But I can't quite figure that out, but there was some way that that could be known my experience with music online would be really different, you know, and I wouldn't, yeah. ha- if I wanted to find a film, you know, instead of scrolling for 32 minutes and find and settling on the born <laughs> legacy again, <laughs> you know, uh, cause it's like, I don't know, I'm confused. Uh, 
then my life would be different. That's doable, right? That, yeah. And it's a different model of immersive experience that should be guided by empathic AI. Yeah. And, and that's more not serious. You know, a 13-year-old girl who, for, for click reasons, is going to anorexia sites and then gets into right. deep trouble, that is a serious problem that this could be, that could be solved. So right. it's serious stuff. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, they, I, I was going to, I was going to make a born identity joke, but then you, you, got, you got really real. I got serious. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I don't even know. That was just, I'm not going to, that was a very solid and legitimate and serious point. And I think we're going to leave that. Yeah, you just delete the seriousness in post-processing. Just, leave just go back to the jokes. I, as far, far for me, again, to besmirch the storied career of Matt Damon. Uh, just, I like the movies too, but you know. Those yeah. are great movies. There's nothing wrong with those movies. Or how much do you like him though? Did you watch the Jeremy Renner one too, or no? I just did. the Matt Damon. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah, I did oh, twice. Wow. So you watch you. I interviewed uh, uh, eons ago. They had a spinoff called like Treadstone or something. Did you watch that show too? Were you like no. all in on them? No. Okay, uh, that's the line. Well, okay. the show didn't last long, and then so that's of course you, then nobody watched it. But um, but that's okay. I just wanted. <laughs> we're going to do a whole deep dive into Dacker's born identity obsession. I love it. Um. All right, let's go ahead. Let's wrap things up. That should just about do another great episode. Uh, real quick, Alan, keep me honest. For all that stuff that I was mentioning, uh, thehumaninitiative.org is the site. People, if they want to go read for themselves and, and, and check it out. And specifically, and I'll put these links in the show notes, uh, thehumaninitiative.org slash wellbeing has um, a greater, greater detail, infinite detail of, of all these different uh, rules and ways in which it can be measured. So for those listening that are uh, uh, were more curious and not satiated by uh, my born identity rants, uh, <laughs> go ahead and <laughs> check out uh, thehumaninitiative.org uh, and, and see exactly what we've been talking about and, and uh, why it is I can sleep better at night knowing that Alan and his team are working to to make these things happen. Um, that about does it. As always, an absolute pleasure having you with us today, Decker. Uh, I oh. long for the days where you could be here every week, but yeah. uh, but but alas, there is only one Decker, so I must learn to share and share. I shall. <laughs> uh, before you get out of here, hey, uh, you got a, a new book coming out in a little bit. You could pre-order it right now. Is that right? Uh, yes, you can. It's called Awe <laughs> from mm -hmm. Penguin. Uh, Fantastic, and, and you can pre-order it. So. All right. I'll find a link. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, and hey, you name dropped Pete Doctor. Has he called you? You going to do anything with them again? Or is that a one shot deal? What's going on there? It's it's coming. <gasps> if, if you heard it first. The feeling right. lab is out two years from now. Uh, <laughs> now we will do Fair a, enough. We'll get Pete. Oh, on. my gosh. We'll or get the, Pete. Oh, man. The well, there you go. Alan, if there was ever a reason to keep this show on the rails for at least two years, there it is. <laughs> that's that's going to be a great episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, hey, I'm no Pete doctor, but uh, the door is always open over here for you at the Feelings Lab, Decker. You know that. So anytime you can Thank make you. time, you okay. please come on in and hang out with us. Alan, another great episode. Thank you as always for being with me. I literally cannot do this without you. Of course. Thanks, man. Thank you. You're just being kind. I, you'd be just fine. Uh, okay. Of course, I saved the best for last, and that is you, kind, patient listener. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you make this whole endeavor worthwhile. Uh, you know, we just did a whole episode dedicated to listener questions, and personally, I can't wait to do another one. So secure your spot in the Feelings Lab Hall of fame from now and send us an awesome question it's real easy you know exactly how to do it just send it on over to the feelings lab at hume 
Ai. That's T H E F E E L I N G S L A B. The little squiggly at guy. Hume H U M E dot AI. Uh, farewell for now from all of us here at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thank you again, everybody, and please stay safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>